So just how important is prayer in the life of the church? This is the second time in the book of Ephesians that we are reading Paul praying for the life of that church. The first time was in chapter 1, you might remember, toward the end there where he stated just how he gives thanks for them, he doesn't cease, and how he prays for them. And now, as we are closing chapter 3, he again records a prayer for the church, as the church always needs the help of the Lord. So what do you pray for when you pray for the church? This is a good text. But just backing up for a moment, before we get into that, last time we were talking about the mysterious unity between the Jews and the Gentiles and how this comes together in the church. Now, now Paul used this, or, or this sparked within Paul, uh, an idea to write about the dispensation or the administration of the church age. Uh, in fact, he, there's evidence that he's actually interrupted in what he's about to say to talk about that. And that's what we talked about last time, the nature of the church. And we saw then that it was new revelation that the saints of old did not know about it. It was something that God revealed graciously to his people in the first century. And so the apostles, Paul, and uh, of course the prophets, they were allowed to talk about that at that time as God revealed it to them. Even so, this thought also leads Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as I said, to again pray for the Ephesians. He's communicating the, the, the content of his prayer for them. As we read here, we're, we're seeing what he's praying for them. And that content may even, in fact, uh, begin in verse 13. Because he starts that verse with a therefore to sum up what he said in verses 1 through 12. And we read there, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. When we get down to verse 21, we see to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, so, so we see the glory belongs to Christ there, and so there's there's definitely some some bookends on this on this section of scripture that's that's worth note. And as we study that, we're definitely seeing here Paul hoping that the church, the Gentiles there, the Jews, will embrace this prayer for them. And he's clearly taken up in prayer for them. Because as I said earlier, it's, it seems like Paul interrupts himself. He has this thought, verse 1 of this chapter, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for your sake, or for the sake of the, you Gentiles. And we get to verse 14. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father. It, it, it's almost as though he's, he was going to write verse 14, with verse 1, but then he got interrupted with this thought of this magnificent thing called the church age, the church dispensation. And so he talks about that, and then he gets to his prayer, why he is so thankful, why he is bowing his knees. And, and it's not just for the church in general, but for this local body, for the Ephesians there. 
And so he transitions into this prayer for the Ephesians. And as he does so, we'll note that his prayer has a major thrust in spiritual blessing. Not temporal blessing, but spiritual blessing. He wants the Lord to bless the church spiritually. And we'll see that in his approach to God, his appeal, and his amen, what should be how we pray for the church. We'll see that we need to, or how we need to approach God in prayer as we're praying for the church. We'll see how we need to appeal to God in prayer as we pray for the church. We'll see how we need to give our amen to God as we pray for the church. So let's note first the prayerful approach, the prayerful approach to God. And again, verses 14 and 15. We read there, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, we could start by <laughs> noting Paul's physical position as we, are, as we are opening up this text, as we're talking about prayer, and we note that he's kneeling, he's bowing his his knee, which of course my knees pop when I do that, but you, you know what we're talking about here. Kneeling, it denotes humility, obviously. Uh, remember the contrast between the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18. The one who kneels and the one who stands in prayer. Uh, of course, we see the difference in their hearts by, based on their positions. Now, of course, Philippians 2.10 says that eventually God will cause every knee to bow. And so every knee will bow, but of course we want to bow in humility and in contrition, not because we are forced to by the Lord. And Paul's approach to God on his knees is obviously in willing submission, in reverence to the king. But I do want to say, though, that there's no command for us to only pray on our knees. We can pray on our knees. We do pray on our knees often. Many saints in Scripture prayed on their knees. We see that in Ezra 9, Psalm 95, Daniel 6. We see the saints in a uh, kneeled position in prayer. But Scripture also describes other positions. For instance, the sorrowful may lay face down in prayer. And we read that uh, in various places. We also see Scripture describing the standing position in prayer favorably. In fact, even Jesus approves of that in Mark 11. So in Luke, he's not saying it's, the, the Pharisee's problem is that he's standing. He's just simply saying the Pharisee is full of pride. We can stand and lift holy hands while we pray. Of course, as I pray for you, I am usually in a standing position, so there's, it's not necessarily that there's anything wrong with that. Some of you will sit in your chairs, and guess what? In Scripture, we also read about saints like David sitting while praying in the temple. And so, sitting is a good position. In fact, in the Psalms, we even read of another position, prayer in bed prayer in bed. Although, 
I will warn you, I will caution you, if you pray in bed, it may cause your prayers to be somewhat shortened <laughs> as, as the sleep gets closer and closer to you there. Uh, but you can pray in any position, but this is, this is ultimately meant to convey humility, obviously. And someone wisely said that the position of the heart is far more important than the position of the body. But we do see Paul kneeling, and he kneels, quote, before the Father. And so he is before the Father. That is, that is the ultimate thing that we see here. He is kneeling before God, the Father. And Paul reminds us uh, in verse 15 of this, uh, that, that he's the father of every family in heaven and on earth. Now, the NIV, I think, reads the whole family, but that's not, that's not quite correct. This simply means that mankind exists in Adam, the Son of God, or the special creation of God. All mankind bears the image of God. Still, Scripture notes a spiritual division there, primarily between two families, the family of God and the family of the devil. Now, thankfully, God is always adopting so you don't, if you're in the family of the devil, you can be adopted into the family of God. It always troubles me, though, when I hear Christians say, oh, you know, all of God's children, and they, they're talking about everyone across the world. No, it's not everyone who's part of God's family. There is a spiritual division that's given here. You say, well, maybe the spiritual division is between the families of earth and the families in heaven. Well, I don't quite think that that's what we're describing here. I think we're talking about angels there. Angels. Because angels, like Adam, are special creations of God. They, they don't have lineage. They are created by God in a moment. Many commentaries agree with this. In fact, the Reformation Study Bible notes, Jewish intertestamental, that's the period between the testaments, Jewish intertestamental and rabbinic literature refers to families of angels. Not only is there a hierarchy of God's uh, servants, there are holy and unholy angels in heaven that we could talk about just as there are people of God and people of the devil, right? And so there are different families that we could talk about in heaven and on earth. Now perhaps Paul is simply recalling verse 9 where he said there that God has created or the God who has or, or who created all things. He's talking about God the creator. He's noting the families on earth. Uh, he's created them. He's noting the angels in heaven. They're created by the Father. But still, even as we're reading this, we can't help but notice that there are some similarities between this and the Lord's Prayer, which we call it the Lord's Prayer. Of course, it's really the disciples' prayer, isn't it? Because it's how he taught his disciples how to pray. And, of course, we just prayed that a few minutes ago. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what do we read here? I bow my knees before the Father, and from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. There's certainly some parallels there as we're thinking about how Paul is approaching God in prayer. Uh, of course, we don't have to only pray the Lord's Prayer, but the Lord's Prayer gives us a wonderful template for how we can frame our prayers. And one of the things that we see in the Lord's Prayer, we, we, we approach him as the Father who is in heaven, and that's what Paul is doing. He's, he's demonstrating humility. He's demonstrating reverence before the Father. And this should be the kind of attitude that we have as we approach the throne of God. It's true that we have confidence in Christ. It's true that we can ap approach the throne boldly, as uh, Hebrews says. But there are some who use this confidence as an excuse to, 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 to be very flippant in their approach to God. And, you know, some, some, sometimes it's, you know, a little juvenile what folks will say, oh, you know, daddy God, this, you know, that, that always kind of makes me cringe a little bit when someone says that. But uh, I suppose that's not even as big a deal as some of the other ways that people approach God. But we should be aware that when we pray, we are praying still to the creator God who has saved us even though we did not deserve it. And, and, and he is the God in heaven. He is above the earth. And, and it is only by his grace that we approach him. So there should be some humility, some introspection, introspection there as, as we're doing that, as we're approaching him. You know, it's, it's like uh, when the, an electrician is dealing with uh, electricity, uh, usually the electrician is, is not necessarily afraid of being shocked, but he is certainly respectful <laughs> of, of, the, of the current that flows through those wires, if he's paying attention, I suppose. And he wants to make sure before he does any work that he shuts off that power. Uh, of course, that's, uh, that's the kind of attitude that we should have as we approach God, not shutting off the power, obviously, but we want to approach him with a reverence. Not because we fear that we're about to be zapped, but we understand that we are dealing with a powerful God who has been very gracious to us, but he is still our Lord and Master. And so we approach him with, with reverence. So we've seen the prayerful approach to God, but now we turn to the prayerful appeal to God. What should we pray for when we pray? Well, note this in verses 16 through 19. He prays that God, or that He, would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So Paul prays that God the Father would grant the church according to God's wealth. Not, not, not just 
wealth and riches, but, but the spiritual blessings that come out of the heavenly treasury that God has opened up to them. He says, according to your riches. And he has already mentioned this abundance in prayer in chapter 1. We talked about that. We were considering the resources that the church has in Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 18, we read, What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And he also said that God called him to preach, in chapter 3, verse 8 here, to preach to the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so Paul prays that God's character, power, and resources expressed in God's glory would enrich the Ephesians' spiritual lives. And that's something that we should certainly pray for as we pray for our church, that God would enrich the lives of the people here, not with necessarily physical blessing, although we do pray for material needs, of course, but we are praying here now specifically for spiritual enrichment that people would know these things. As we consider this, we're seeing something, an example of how pastors should pray. So we see here uh, uh, Paul praying, certainly in a pastoral role. And Calvin says, let pastors learn from Paul's example not only to admonish and to exhort their people, but to entreat the Lord to bless their labors, that they may not be unfruitful. Nothing will be gained by their industry and toil. All their study and application will be to no purpose, except so far as the Lord bestows his blessing. So that's certainly something that pastors should pray for as they pray for their people. And that's something that all Christians, indeed, should take note of. Now, this is just all by way of introduction to this point as, uh, as we're considering how to appeal to God. And so as we think about that, we are noting three ways to pray for the enrichment of the church. Three ways to pray for the enrichment of the church. We pray for the church's inner strength. We pray for the church's inner grasp, and we pray for the church's inner fullness. And so, let's look again at the first one. We pray for the church's inner strength, and that starts with verse 16. And he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power. Now, that's in the passive. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, uh, I'm, I'm praying that you would be strong. No, he's saying, I, I'm praying that you would be strengthened. And that's interesting. Why? Because God is the one who's doing the strengthening. God's the one who's doing the strengthening. He's granting the strength to the believers. And several verses contain a passive command, like be strong. Um, but, but it's interesting as we see that because Paul says in Philippians 4.13, for instance, that it's Christ who strengthens you. And so even in those commandments where we see be strong, he's not telling you spend more time at the gym, you know, or, you know, man up and, you know, pull up your britches and uh, lace up your boots and get to work. He's not telling you that kind of stuff. He, he's saying instead to be empowered, to be empowered by God. 
by Christ. He praised in Colossians 1.11 that Christians would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. It is according to God's glorious might that we should operate in this world. And so Paul prays for supernatural strengthening with power here. That's what he's praying. Now, as I go through that, there may be some who have a perhaps a slightly more charismatic bent to them. And when we start talking about things like, like might and power, they might think of the spectacular, the supernatural signs and, and gifts and wonders. But in this context, we're talking about an inner strengthening. We're talking about something that's taking place in the inner man, in the soul, or the spirit. As such, the strengthening was not primarily physical, but psychological. And it's sad, as, as I've been thinking about uh, the issues of, of, of revival this week, and, and considering, that, uh, considering some, of the, some of the revivals that have taken place, uh, or some of the activities that have taken place under the banner of a revival uh, in Florida, for instance, in Lakeland. I, uh, as, uh, I saw that one a little bit closer, but then there's Brownsville, of course, and there's a lot of different ones. And, and it's sad because, for instance, in the Lakeland one, you know, people were saying there's all kinds of power being shown and demonstrated there, but the, but the man who was on the stage was getting drunk before he came up on the stage stage and he was doing all kinds of antics on the stage that people were saying well if that's what God is doing well I don't think that God was telling him to kick an old lady in the stomach to to get rid of her cancer you know I, I don't think that's what was going on there and of course we found out that while he was there and there for an extended period of time he was cheating on his wife with a secretary and you know he's in an adulterous relationship now if we just put the question aside as to whether these miracles that were claimed there are true or false, why is it that there's so much power supposedly on display, but there's not inner power? There's not self-control. What's happening there? See, the power that Christ promises us is the power over sin. That's the power that we should be praying for in ourselves, and that's the power we should be praying for for others. That the church's inner strength would be made even stronger. That they would know these things. This is one of these roles that the Holy Spirit has in our lives. Walking in the Spirit prevents us from fulfilling the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 says that. And Paul said, despite his inability to live perfectly by it, his inner man, Romans 7.22, joyfully concurred with the law of God. And so even in the midst of struggle, which all Christians have struggle, and don't, don't mishear me, he understands that there is something within him as a believer that joyfully concurs with Scripture. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit within a person. When we're praying, Lord, continue that work. Make people stronger. Make people stronger. Verse 17 somehow parallels this request. 
And so in verse 17, we see, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. And he goes on from there. One commentary described, this is likely the purpose or the result of the previous request. And so it helpfully translates it this way. I pray that the Father may give to you to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit with the result that Christ may dwell in your hearts. You get that. I pray that the Father may give to you to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit with the result that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And you might ask, well, doesn't Christ already indwell people? Well, yeah, of course. He, he indwells believers. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus said this. He says that both he and the Father would make their abode in the believer. But in the last chapter, chapter 2 here, Paul also said of the church that you are being built up together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Okay? Now, Romans 8, it's, it, it, it might be a little bit more confusing. Let's, let's take a quick peek there. Romans 8. Verse 9. We see... That God, or that the believer, is being described as having the Spirit of God dwelling within you. The Spirit of God dwells in you. But then it also talks about the Spirit of Christ there, in that same verse. And then, so the Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ is used synonymously, it looks like. Now look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, and so we see, okay, so Christ is in you. Now look at verse 11. The Spirit of Him, if the Spirit of Him who, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so it's the Spirit, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you, so it's the Spirit. All of this is given. Or is it the Father who dwells in you? <laughs> so we see, okay, so it's the Son, it's the Father, it's the Spirit. Well, how, how do we sort through all of that? Well, of course, we serve one God. We, we, just, we just had that in our catechism, right? We worship one God. And so we might best understand this. As this, the Father and the Son indwells us through the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's how we would see that. Because, of course, we also know that the Father is on the throne. We know that Jesus is at his right hand. We know that he is interceding for us. And so, God indwells us through the Spirit. And so, if we have the Spirit, we have that indwelling. Okay, but how does that wrap with what we just read? To be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit, with the result that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now that's a good question. Doesn't Christ already indwell us? Again, we're back to the same question. Well, Paul's prayer is not about salvation. It's about sanctification. We're not talking about them getting Jesus into their heart for the first time. We're talking about Jesus making a permanent abode there. 
In fact, as one commentary explains, the word dwell here, it refers not to the beginning of Christ's indwelling at the moment of salvation. Instead, it denotes the desire that Christ may literally be at home in. That is, at the very center of, or deeply rooted in, believers' lives. They are to let Christ become the dominating factor in their attitudes and conducts. And so, Christ through the Spirit indwells us. But what we're praying is that, that, that the Holy Spirit, that Christ, he, that, that He would, through the Holy Spirit, have a permanent abode within us. That He would be at home within us. It's not that He would ever remove His Spirit from, from believers, but we're praying that that believer's life would be marked as someone who has the indwelling presence of God. That person is being strengthened within. This isn't an ask Jesus into your heart moment. This is a make Christ permanently indwell and be central in you moment. This is the strengthening of the inner man. As we read in 1 John 4.4, 4, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So this is an incredible prayer for power. And he continues that. In verses uh, 17, the second half of verse 17 there, through uh, verse 19, the first part there, we pray for the church's inner grasp, not just the church's inner strength, but the church's inner grasp. And so verse 17, starting in the middle there, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Wow. You know, perhaps the two participles that we find in here to describe the Christian's relationship uh, or that describe the Christian describes the Christian's relationship to God's love. Being rooted and grounded in love. God must take His perfect love and root it, ground it, within us. The first term there is an agricultural reference. The second is an architectural reference. We want to be rooted. We want to have the roots of the tree to go deep, of the vine. We want to be standing on a firm foundation. <laughs> Yeah, whether we're looking for, at it from an agricultural or a, an archaeological or uh, architectural perspective, we must stand in His love, and we must draw everything from it, all of our life. And this love is part of the grace that He imparts to believers. This grace helps believers to grow in their love for God and for each other. Paul prays that God would grace believers to know more about it, the very dimensions of it, 
And so we see there the, 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 the four dimensions that are listed there, the breadth, the, the, the length, the height, the depth. And of course, this would require supernatural knowledge, right? To be able to, to, to wrap your mind around all of that. How, how do you see all of that in your mind? How do you get your arms, your, your, your mental arms around all of that? How do you grasp that? Well, Paul is hoping that the Ephesians and all the rest of the saints would obtain this comprehension. Y'all, this is not a privatized experience. Christianity is not something that happens in a corner. This is something that is meant to be shared by all of us. And on Sunday mornings, I know Sunday nights, we don't have quite as many people. Sunday mornings, just look around, you see all the people. You see young, you see old, you see babies, you see, you see um, people from all sorts of walks of life coming in, from all manner of, of days and, and backgrounds. And you see them all, and just think to yourself, you know, God would want all to know. To comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. He wants all of us to understand this. Not just a few. All of us. The individual Christian should never seek individual edification to the exclusion of others. Seeking out hidden knowledge of which other Christians are ignorant. So that you can say, well, I, I know the truth on that one. Rather, we should desire mutual edification in the church, which is part of what God's revealing here and what we're talking about when we say we should be praying for this for the whole church. The whole church should be growing. The incalculable measurements of God's love includes such wide-reaching dimensions as including both Jews and Gentiles. It's, God's love is so wide-reaching, it can even include you. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? God's love continues the entire length of history, including the span of your life. We think about today, but what about tomorrow? Listen, God's love can reach tomorrow. It doesn't stop today. It can reach unto tomorrow. God's love reaches the heights of the heavens where our salvation is reserved until that day. And God's love reaches down even to, into the depths of where you are. Even when you are in the depths of sin, God's love can reach down and grab you and pick you up. God's love can go down deep into the earth as the cross of Christ was driven down deep into the earth so that it would stand as a testimony of God's love for you and for me. We can't line this up perfectly. <laughs> we, can't, we can't know it all perfectly. God's love is multifaceted. <laughs> Every time we look at it, we see something new there. We can only grow in our appreciation of it 
as he reveals just yet another angle and dimension to you. <laughs> but we pray that you would know. I hope you pray that I would know. That the whole church would know. And verse 19 seems to continue this thought as he prays that the Gentile Ephesians could know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, the love of the Messiah. Elsewhere we read that the peace of God surpasses all comprehension, Philippians 4.7. But here it's love which surpasses what we can know. It's beyond us. It always will be. And yet Paul prays that we would understand it and understand it more. And we see how much God loves us. In spite of our sin, we can only begin to understand then. We can only begin to understand then. And so when you pray... Pray for the church's inner strength. Pray for the church's inner grasp. And pray for the church's inner fullness. To finish out verse 19 there, praise that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. There's all the that's there. And that's how I'm breaking it up. These are purpose statements, and here you see that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. You know, even as we are talking about this, you're already beginning to sense a little bit of God's fullness. How He fills us. How He fills the body, the church. Well, chapter 1, verse 23 says that, where Paul says, uh, the church, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Christ fills the church. He fills it in a way, positionally, that He has already completely filled believers. Colossians 2 talks about that. But the individual members of the church and the individual congregations uh, there may not know or experience this fullness. Sometimes we don't always experience these things. We, we must believe them even when we don't feel the uh, truth of it, but the experience should still be prayed for. And so the Ephesian church, with all or with as well as uh, it, it was doing with all that it was doing so well still needed to be perfected and so we read more about what this means to be filled and when we get to chapter 5 we'll see more about this chapter 5 verse 18 of course we read do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the spirit verse 19 then gives us a description of what that might look like Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You want to know what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit? 
It's amazing how people twist that verse and say, oh, see, we're not supposed to be drunk with wine. We're supposed to get spiritually drunk and we start, you know, kind of staggering about and uh, we might start laughing uncontrollably or maybe we fall over and just roll in the, in the church aisles. No. What it, it goes on to describe what being filled with the Spirit is. We speak to one another in an edifying way instead of in hateful ways like we may, might have before. We even sing. We sing to one another and we sing to the Lord. God has filled us with a joy and we begin to give thanks for all things. And we're subject to one another. That's not something that's very popular, but we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 5. We actually start to practice Christian submission. This is what it means to be filled with the fullness of God. All of these things. And we should be praying for that. We should be praying that the church would grow in its inner strength. We should pray that the church should grow in its inner grasp. We should pray that the church should grow in its inner fullness. And so with that said, Paul begins to sign off on this prayer. And he does so with a doxology. In the benediction he writes. And so now let's turn to his amen. And note not just the prayerful uh, the prayerful approach to God and the prayerful um, uh, appeal to God, but also the prayerful amen to God for the church. And so verse 20, we read, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that he works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul, Paul ties up his prayer much like the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer end? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, he's affirming God's will and God's glory. He stated elsewhere that God is able to make all grace abound toward believers. And so here, God is not only able to do all that we ask or think, he's able to do both far more abundantly and beyond all. <laughs> so, so we see this just being piled on, pressed, pressed down. And all of this, Paul says, is according to the power that works within us. The same power of verse 16 that we read about. The same power that God, or that Paul, that granted Paul the ability to minister, verse 7. And Paul confidently says that this power is working within us. So, of course, we should be praying that. We should pray that this power increases. But as, as this works within super abundantly more than we ask or think, it is always at work, and we should trust that as we are closing our prayers. We affirm what God has said. And so in verse 21, he starts similarly with, uh, or as verse 20 had started, to him. So note that the 
glory is in the church, which is supposed to be full of God, the church which is supposed to be full of Christ, the church which is supposed to be full of God's love, the church which is supposed to be full of God's power. Yeah, yeah, the glory is in the church. <laughs> the glory of God. And the glory is also in Christ Jesus. And the Father will receive all glory that Christ receives. And so when all is operating rightly, the glory of God is, is present for all to see within the church to all generations forever and ever. And indeed, amen to that. So be it. So be it. May it be in Living Water Baptist Church. May we be full of the power of God. This is quite a prayer for the spiritual welfare of the church. So if you're looking for something to pray for your church, something to pray for your family and your friends in the church, it's this right here. Pray that God would grant these truths to each of us in the church and that this whole church would be on fire for, for, for what we see here. And while you're on your knees praying for these things, you're certainly not selfish to pray for it for yourself either. <laughs> Go ahead and pray for it for yourself as well. <laughs>